Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 2nd of August, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us, of course, northern exposure from north of the border. Uh, and it's with David we're starting. Welcome to the programme, David. And uh, this is uh, from the government website, information for UK recipients on COVID-19 vaccine, AstraZeneca Regulation 174. Yes, thank you very much to uh, the UK Column researcher that spotted this and the implications of it. So this document's uh, outlining uh, everything you need to know about the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine. And uh, the uh, key sentence from the second slide here is uh, talking about the, the effects of um, reduced blood platelets, uh, bleeding and blood clotting events. Uh, and it says um, some cases were life-threatening or had a fatal outcome. It's important to remember that the benefits of vaccination to give protection against COVID-19 still outweigh any potential risks. So the takeaway there is they're acknowledging that due to bleeding and blood clot events that some people are being killed by the vaccine. And this is an official government document that's making that very clear. And But the argument is, yes, we're killing people, but we're saving many more lives. And overall, the benefits outweigh the risks. That's the key point. Um, this, uh, we've got a, a, an extract here from an Edinburgh University study that talks about the same thing. It, it's much less clear and frank about the fact that people are dying. Um, it, it's not clear on that at all, but it does come down with the same basic conclusion. Uh, the risk is very small and needs to be seen in the context of the very clear benefits of the vaccines, the potentially higher risks of these outcomes in those who develop COVID-19. So risks and benefits again. So this is the, the view from the university sector. This is the view from the government. So I thought, well, this is going to be a very straightforward thing. The government have, have acknowledged that the vaccines are killing some people. They're saying that uh, they're saving many more and uh, the, the, the risks um, are outweighed by the benefits. Now, we know that the risks of COVID vary hugely across the population. Young people have almost no risk and and and, the, and most of the fatalities are in the elderly. So I think, well, I, I thought to myself, well, there must be uh, a risk assessment that's been done. So I started to ask for this. So I sent out uh, uh, some emails. Here's one example here. And basically it says, uh, please provide full calculations, evidence bases, supporting documentation that demonstrates the relative risks COVID-19 for the various sections of the population before and after vaccination and compare those risks to the risks from the vaccination programme. Right? A simple risk assessment. I thought that was a, a, a request that I would get an answer for, from. I sent it to the Scottish Government. The Scottish Government gave me quite a prompt response, but unfortunately the response was the Scottish Government does not have the information you've asked for. Uh, because the Scottish Government does not hold the data. So the Scottish Government didn't know. So I thought, well, we'll go to the experts, we'll go to people charged with the Scottish Government and looking after Scottish public health, public health Scotland. And they said, mm, well, you better speak to the MHRA because we don't know. So I then, uh, I tried the NHS because I thought, well, the NHS are bound to know. And they said, unfortunately, NHS customer Contact Centre does not hold this information. We're unable to assist. Please contact Public Health England. Okay, I thought, well, we're getting somewhere. So I tried Public Health England. Um, and they said, thank you for your email. 
Your email has been passed to Public Health England's press office for their consideration. That was on the 21st of July. I'm still waiting. They're still considering. So Public Health England are considering. And as far as the MHRA are concerned, I have here an automated reply from the 24th of June. Um, I've had another automated reply to my reminder that they've never actually answered this. And I have had no substantial response from the MHRA. So my question for you gentlemen is, since the government documentation admits that they are killing people and, assur and assures us that they're saving many more, and that uh, if you weigh up the risks and benefits across the various spectrum of the age ranges and risk profiles across the country, it's all positive. There must be some calculations and studies to show this, surely. Why am I unable to get any? Um, well, indeed there is, David, and uh, there's a regular uh, briefing uh, update from the government, from the uh, government on this, from Public Health England, I should say. Um, and I think the latest claim is something in the region of uh, uh, 80,000 lives saved. I can't remember what the, the specific number is, but you've got to understand, David, that that is on the basis of computer modeling. Um, and so the reason that they can't give you an answer is because they don't hold the data. All they hold are some computer models which uh, produce some information, which then gets published by Public Health England. Uh, but uh, since we already know the uh, the the veracity of the computer modeling which got us into this situation in the first place, uh, there's actually nothing substantive in the Public Health England publication which uh, provides any evidence that their models are any better than any of the others. So um, that's, that's the answer. Um, you aren't going to get any definitive data from any of these organizations because they're relying on models. That should make you feel uh, comfortable. Well, I mean, if, if that's actually correct, that's, that's astonishing. I mean, if we're killing people and the answer is, well, the computer model says it's okay, that, that would be criminal. Um, if they are simply not doing the study and taking a kind of broad overview and uh, she'll be fine, that's also, I mean, that's gross negligence. The, the, you, can't, you can't have a policy that says we're going to kill some people because we're going to save a lot more and not have that substantiated. Surely, surely, um, the, the, this, there must be some sort of evidence base. You would, I would have thought, I, I, I'm astonished I haven't had a response. Um, I'm going to keep trying, but uh, it doesn't seem that I'm going to get anywhere. Although the MHRA, you know, a month and a half on, still haven't responded. They're obviously thinking about it. Maybe, um, maybe, they'll, maybe they'll respond soon. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, on Wednesday's programme, we'll bring back the methodology that they use and put that on the programme on Wednesday, just to remind everybody what the methodology that they use to justify their claims that tens of thousands of lives have been saved so far. Yeah. Uh, well, let's follow the, this uh, fascinating trail a little bit deeper and we can turn to the Telegraph. Uh, you've used the expression killing people, David, but of course for the, for the Telegraph, the headline is NHS made pandemic plan to deny elderly care. So we don't kill people. We simply deny them the care they need to live. And hey, presto, they die. And I'm not making light of a very serious subject. I'm really putting a spotlight on the way the Telegraph is approaching things. Let's have a look at what they had to say. And also, I have to say thank you to the a uh, number of people, UK Column supporters, who saw this article 
and realized how important it was and sent it through to us. So let's have a look at, into it. So we've taken some of the quotes here. The NHS drew up secret plans to withdraw hospital care from people in nursing homes in the event of a pandemic. Confidential Whitehall documents show that the NHS plans refused treatment to those in their 70s and support would instead be offered to use so-called end-of-life pathways. I hope you're paying attention to that, David, because we're going to support people uh, by helping them into end-of-life pathways where, by some remarkable coincidence, they die. And on it goes. Uh, the strategy was drawn up by NHS England following a pandemic planning exercise in 2016 and was designed to stop hospitals being overwhelmed. Now, I'm going to say here, it's just fascinating the amount of studies that were done prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, which forecast out of nowhere the fact we were going to have a pandemic. So important for our viewers and listeners to uh, remember that. But just to clarify, the, uh, the way that they were designing to relieve the pressure on the NHS was to relieve the pressure by killing people and therefore there wouldn't be so many people asking for help from the NHS, is that it? Well, you have to draw that as the inference from uh, from what the uh, Telegraph says because, of course, the Telegraph hasn't got all the information. But let's follow it through. Uh, they suggest that in a severe flu pandemic, the health secretary could authorise medics to prioritise some patients over others and even stop providing critical care altogether. So that answers part of your question, I think, Mike. And uh, this one here, ministers have repeatedly insisted care homes were not abandoned by the NHS, despite mounting evidence the contrary. More than 42,000 residents in England and Wales died during the pandemic, and hospitals released thousands of patients into care without testing. So um, this is an interesting article, and uh, it appears, if you take it at face value, that the Telegraph has got some concerns as to what's happening, but let's follow it through. So um, this is the um, uh, another um, Telegraph article, hospital figures for COVID cases misleading the government accused of making flawed decisions after the NHS finds a quarter of virus patients had another cause of omission. Um, there was a little uh, note, a uh, little subheadline under the uh, picture here. Data show that of 5,021 patients currently classified as hospitalized by COVID, 1,166 were admitted for other reasons. So this is approximately 50, uh, sorry, approximately 25%. Um, but this is a, a snapshot taken on the 29th of July. So we can say, if you've got a 25% error running, uh, what was actually happening during the whole of the uh, COVID-19 so-called pandemic. Well, the comment from the Telegraph is this. Since last March, the NHS has published daily statistics on the number of COVID hospitalizations and the total number of patients in hospital with the virus. But in the run-up to Freedom Day earlier this month, hospitals were instructed to provide further data distinguishing between admissions primarily caused by COVID and those which were not. For the new data set, hospitals were instructed to provide, quote, a breakdown of the current stock of COVID patients into, into those in hospital with acute COVID-9 symptoms, 
and for whom COVID-19 is the primary reason for being in hospital, and those who are primary in hospital for a reason other than COVID-19. So for the first time, we're getting a clear breakdown between COVID and non-COVID patients. Um, but let's remember the figure is 25%, at least 25% inaccurate during the whole of lockdown. This is what is emerging. So on we go. The disclosures will also put officials under pressure to revise pre previous statistics on COVID hospitalizations and in future to use primary diagnosis with the virus as the key daily statistic. Uh, last summer, Public Health England was forced to make changes to the way it reported death figures after its methods were found to, quote, inflate total numbers by counting a virus fatality, anyone who tested positive COVID and later died. Earlier this week, the Telegraph revealed that more than half of patients classed as COVID hospitalizations only tested positive after admission with the figures suggesting that large numbers of patients were being categorized as COVID admission when it was not the primary cause. So, David, it seems to me here, we've got some more to show. The government lied and falsified data. Uh, but as we're going to see, the Telegraph message from here on is that it all seems to be a terrible mistake. It was just a bit of good old-fashioned incompetence and a little bit of cock-up. Do you want to comment on that before we just show well, a little bit more? Well, yes, because that can't be true, because the, the Telegraph has just shown that the plans were in place and we saw them rolled out where medical care was essentially withdrawn from care homes. Care homes were left. The, the closest they could get was a, was a phone call to uh, a physician. They didn't get, they didn't get any visits. They didn't have access to highly trained medical staff. They couldn't admit people to hospital. They were left without medical care. And I see the uh, the, the Telegraph also identified that the plans were in place, which were which would mean leaving premature babies without care uh, under some circumstances under a pandemic. So the plans were in place, and we saw them delivered, and we saw the death toll as a result. This cannot be viewed as accidental because it was premeditated. Uh, well, David, that's certainly how it seemed to me as I worked through this article. But let's let's show people a little bit more about what the Telegraph has been doing. So we bring the article back centre. Let's have a look at some of the articles that the Telegraph had put up. So we've got uh, just appeared on the screen here. And need my glasses for this as usual. Exclusive exercise Cygnus warned that the NHS could not cope with pandemic three years ago, but terrifying results were kept secret. Now we start to see a little bit more of spin because the result of the exercise Cygnus was terrifying mm. and we didn't prepare enough. Not what was exercise Cygnus doing, what was it actually trying to say was going to happen, but no, it was just ter terrifying, but we didn't prepare enough. In came this article, 25,000 patients discharged into care homes without coronavirus tests at height of the crisis. Uh, we've got this linked article, all coming out of the, the main article about the NHS uh, pandemic to deny the elderly care. How care homes paid the price for COVID as ministers scrambled to give the NHS 
uh, sorry, to save the NHS at any cost. And this one here, care home residents put on do not resuscitate orders without consent. Uh, more than 500 residents made subject uh, to such orders. Well, I think it's a lot more than 500 because these statistics were never put out. And this is one here, hospital figures for COVID cases uh, misleading. So the Daily Mail, uh, sorry, the Telegraph knows full well that there's a whole raft of evidence against the government and its agencies. But what do they print? Well, they bring in this man, Sajid Javid. Uh, he said he asked for this advice. What he's talking about is the proper segregation in data between COVID-19 uh, patients and people in hospital for other things. I've asked for this advice because it's important that we try to better analyze the primary diagnosis of anyone coming into hospital. Well, this is a very interesting statement because if we put words in his mouth, he's really saying that prior to and during the pandemic, the claim pandemic, it was important that we didn't know the primary diagnosis of anyone coming into hospital. And I think we can also suggest that what, what he's really getting at is if you're ramping up a pandemic using applied psychology to increase fear and anxiety, it's best if the NHS COVID-19 stats are as extreme as possible, which is what they were doing. Uh, the Telegraph brings in also Ian Duncan Smith, and he says this, what we're beginning to discover is that the nature of the data collection has been really poor. This in turn means that ministers who have to make very big decisions are too often sitting on misleading data, which often leads to flawed decision making. So you can see, David and Mike, this is just, this is all a little bit of a mistake, really. It's a bit of misleading data. It really does not speak well that they have not been forthcoming and what the real figures are. These figures will be having a direct impact on some of the decisions that have been made and are being made. So he does acknowledge that there are real figures then? Uh, well, apparently, but nobody's seen the real figures. The figures we're seeing, which are clearly not real because they're so inaccurate, um, are telling a really uh, amazing story because what we've got is what we've flagged up in red here. Tens of thousands of elderly people, hundreds of thousands possibly, have died. We've locked up a nation and destroyed the economy. But it's all really just a little bit of flawed data and some flawed decision making. And if we really want to know what the uh, medical care in UK is focused on, well, it's not improving the health of people. It's this, here's Public Health Matters, gov.uk, using behavioural science to improve and protect the health of the nation. So never mind the fact we've got elderly people who've died as a result of this. We've got the vaccine adverse effects. And we've got misleading data. Uh, you've got to trust the same people because they're going to change our behaviour to make us more healthy. It's outrageous. Yes. Well, I don't know what more to say. David. Well, it, it's, it's interesting, though, that IDS is, is starting to talk about the flawed data. Obviously, it's been one of the things we've been talking about for about a year and a half now. But this is absolutely key because, of course, once you start looking for accurate data, the only place to stop is when you actually get some. Now, the, the definition of a case was changed to be a positive test. The definition of a COVID death was changed to be within 28 days of a positive test. 
the testing we know is monumentally unreliable. And, and not only that, but the degree to which it's unreliable is probably known because it, it will depend on the number of cycles of the PCR test that's been run. Um, therefore, there is a story to be uncovered here about just how much the, the reality was magnified via the media, via the narrative, via the government story to justify the policy. Now, that's a very interesting story. I would hope that there'll be some of our politicians would actually pursue that because uh, that needs to be known. It does indeed, but I think uh, I don't think there's too many MPs uh, stepping up to the plate to to do that. Uh, I mean, just to reinforce that, David. Of course, what we saw initially was the claim that a case was anybody that had tested positive, or a death was anybody that had tested positive at some point leading up to their death. It didn't matter how long it was. So somebody, as uh, Ian Davis made the point in his article on this, uh, somebody could have uh, tested positive in March. Uh, and died in August or September and being considered a COVID death, even though they were they died of cancer or something else. Um, and uh, uh, you know, it was it was only after quite a bit of pressure that the the definitions were changed to to this twenty eight this twenty eight day notion. Um, it and since then we have uh, constantly been saying on this program that of course there's different methodologies, different types of data from all the various agencies, whether it be Public Health England or the MHRA or whomever, which means it's practically impossible in the NHS, which means, it, well, it's not practically impossible. It is impossible to compare apples with apples, therefore. Um, and uh, so we can never actually get to the bottom of um, the correctness of any statement that a government minister might say, because we don't see what they see. Um, and uh, we can't actually properly analyze uh, Aside from the way we've been doing it for the last fourteen months, yeah, I think I think the politicians are being pulled into the spotlight. There is so much information and questioning now happening in the country. They are beginning to feel pulled forward. And what I think we've got going on here is the start of a campaign. We are. We mustn't blame the politicians. We mustn't blame the people who made the decisions. Um, Chris Whitty and Co. This is all a terrible mistake over over data. That's what I think is is brewing here. And uh, if we watch the media closely, we'll see whether that uh, idea is correct or not. Um, now, on Thursday evening and Friday evening last week, uh, we were delighted to be hosting uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics for their uh, symposium. Uh, absolutely fantastic event, a few technical problems on Thursday, uh, but nonetheless, the information that was given out was superb. Um, so uh, session one and session two are now available on the front page of the UK column website as uh, on-demand videos edited with removing all the technical glitches. Um, and so please do share those already and sessions three and uh, four uh, will be up um, later on in the day. Um, so here is the uh, UK column uh, front page at the moment. Uh, so they're right up at the top. Uh, do have a look at that. And to, I mean, share it as widely as possible. I just can't say thanks enough to uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics and everybody else that contributed to that because it was a fantastic two days. It was a fantastic two days, uh, Mike, and I'm going to say, and of course, it couldn't have happened with all the work that you did with the, uh, the team here in the UK Column Studios. Now, we'd like to say that a lot of people, a lot of people sent us emails we can't cover them all, but let's just bring a couple up on screen. I'm just writing to thank you and all at UK Column 
as well as all contributors for the amazing symposium. I'll be keeping an eye out for the whole thing to be archived while well, we've just uh, covered that. It's an invaluable package of information that needs to be spread far and wide. Again, thank you and in general for all your hard work. Very best, best wishes, Tracy. Uh, absolutely incredible conference. It's heart-wrenching and at the same time so informative. I so enjoy your episodes weekly. There are no words to express my gratitude. You're warriors for humanity. Still trying to figure out as a small minority how to make a difference. My very educated family and most friends are completely hypnotized by the main narrative. Small group of people I converse with are completely open and aware and watch your show. Um, Canada is unrecognizable. I like the Cash Friday idea. Class actions have to start, etc. Keep up the good work, everyone. And a big thank you. God bless you all from Krista. So really nice to, to get the support in here. And uh, for anybody wondering what Cash Friday is, uh, this is Catherine Austin Fitz's idea that uh, central bank digital currencies possibly aren't the best thing for us. We may not want to be contributing towards that particular agenda. And a good place to start, a very simple thing that people can do is to just stop using uh, digital currencies of any kind, whether it be a cash card or whatever it is. Just use Cash and Friday, start there, a very small gesture but it gets you started, and I think it's a fantastic idea. Now, if you like uh, what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. Uh, there are options to join us there, and uh, your membership would be very much appreciated and needed. Uh, and also do share the material that you find on the various platforms, plus the ukcolumn.org website. Um, and David, after uh, a little bit of a wait, uh, the Dolores Carroll interview is finally up, and we've got to thank uh, Mickey uh, for editing this for us. Yes, and yes, indeed, uh, we have been overwhelmed with the amount of work that's been coming in, and uh, but we have been responding, and we've now got some additional people helping out, which is tremendous. Uh, Mickey did a fine job on this, and I hope people will enjoy the interview. Uh, it's on uh, Northern Exposure YouTube channel at, at the moment, and it will also be on the UK Column website later in the day. Um, uh, Dolores goes through her, her background and uh, her approach to science and uh, the mindset that she's brought to it, and that will uh, allow people to understand why she has been speaking out uh, the way she has been. Okay, thank you. Now, uh, we've mentioned this uh, over the last couple of, well, two or three months ago, but the government has uh, uh, moving forward with its plans for digital identity. And uh, today it's published the second version of its digital identity trust framework, uh, which is part of the plan to make it faster and easier for us all to verify ourselves using modern technology through a process as trusted as using driver's licenses or passports. So that should make you feel warm and cuddly. All put together by the same government we trust over COVID. Absolutely. Uh, so this framework shows how organizations can be certified to provide secure digital identity services. Uh, they will have to go through an assessment process with an independent certification body. So this isn't about the government providing digital identity uh, services. This is about third parties providing digital identity services. And of course, there's all kinds of uh, data protection implications, ethical implications. But we'll come on to some of those in a second. Now, let's just remind ourselves uh, what the government was saying about this. Uh, they, they would put in place a data management policy uh, to explain how they create, obtain, disclose, protect, and delete data. Uh, and they're going to follow industry standards for best practice for information security and encryption because the 
UK government is renowned for its capability in this area. Uh, and uh, I hope everybody recognizes the sarcasm in that statement. But anyway, uh, telling the user if any changes, for example, an update to their address had been made to their digital identity. So uh, there's nothing in place to prevent somebody uh, that's providing a service to make changes uh, to their data without the person's uh, knowledge, but they will be told about it. So that's fantastic. Now, Matt Warman, a couple of months ago, who is the Minister for Digital Infrastructure said, it's become increasingly important in this digital age to be able to establish trust, particularly online. There are times in day-to-day -day life when you may be asked to prove something about yourself to access a service or product. So remember, this was before the main uh, conversation about uh, COVID ID, uh, passports and COVID ID uh, was really being discussed. Um, but clearly, the infrastructure is being put in place for this as quickly as it can be. Uh, he went on to say, having a, an agreed digital identity that you can use easily and universally will be the cornerstone of future economies. Um, and they provided some uh, nice documentation that goes with this um, to give an example of the types of digital identities that, uh, that we, they would be providing. So one type of digital identity which could be developed under a trust framework is similar to a wallet, uh, but created securely on your device. So you need to have a device it lets you store various trusted pieces of information about yourself. We call these pieces of inf personal information attributes. So you are effectively a, 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 an item in a database. Uh, you, ha you have attributes and you can choose when and with whom you share these attributes, but you would probably never show share your whole wallet of information. Again, this should be making everybody feel very uh, secure and safe, <laughs> yes. Uh, this could include disclosing details from the government, such as your legal name, uh, your date of birth, your right to reside, to work or to study, as well as details from other organizations such as your professional qualifications or employment history. Um, and uh, well, at the time that we reported this, which I think was in March, uh, and again, they've reminded us about this today when they've made this new disclosure, this new update to this, uh, they're running a consultation, a survey, uh, and the details are uh, on screen at the moment. I think. Uh, uh, sorry, that's actually the wrong one. That's the, the, the one in March. But there's there's uh, a similar uh, consultation going on at the moment. Uh, and we'll make sure that the correct uh, URL for that is in the show notes under the uh, under the video later on this afternoon. Um, so they're running a consultation. I think it ends uh, towards the end of August. Uh, and people may want to get involved in that. Um, so uh, where does that take us? Well, of course, let's have a look at a couple of the companies that are involved uh, in wanting to get into this area. So we've got uh, uh, this group here and COVID, uh, COVID digital passport, keep your staff, visitors and patients safe using your COVID identity verification system. Uh, these things will all plug into this, uh, this framework. At this point, they're all really bidding for this type of work, but they are really very keen to get uh, to get registered, to get approved, uh, and away they go. Uh, the NCOVID passport solution, by the way, uh, is funded through a government-backed Innovate, Innovate UK grant. Uh, so they probably have a fairly good chance. Uh, this one uh, is uh, a world where everything is made easier. Uh, and uh, imagine a world where everything is made easier. I couldn't get any better, could it? Uh, this, of course, is Fingo. Uh, there's some uh, normal biometrics on there with fingerprint reader and so on. And let's have a look at one of the others, uh, Blockpool, uh, which is uh, basing identity on custom blockchain development and so on. It, it just, uh, it gets better and better. We have one more, I think, here. Uh, well, no, this is uh, 
Switzerland, uh, of course, a couple of months ago, shot down there, as, as described in this headline, digital identity scheme shot down by voters over data privacy concerns. But, so where does this take us? We've got COVID passports. We've got a central, well, we've got a framework that third parties are able to guarantee uh, digital identities and so on, but this cannot really be separated from the concept of central bank digital currencies. We've been talking about this quite a bit over the last few months. This was uh, the Bank for International Settlements tweet in June, at the end of June. CDB, uh, CBDCs offer uh, in digital form the unique advantages of central bank money, settlement finality, liquidity and integrity, bolstering the central bank foundations of the payment system. But the key point here is that whereas central bank uh, money, if you want to call it that, uh, was mainly for the use, it was provided on a wholesale basis to, uh, to uh, commercial banks. Um, of course, now what they're wanting to do is to roll this out to you and I. Uh, in other words, they're providing retail uh, central bank digital currencies um, and uh, two types of retail central bank digital currencies, uh, one which is so-called account-based and one which is token-based. So they very much want to get on the, uh, the Bitcoin bandwagon here. Um, and... Uh, uh, but so the question is, what are the implications of this? Well, in fact, part of this was covered uh, during the symposium uh, on Thursday afternoon by Catherine Austin Fitz. And I'm just going to play a short excerpt from that uh, because the implications, uh, I'm going to ask David to comment on a second. Uh, just have a listen to this. Now, what is the danger? If you combine vaccine passports which is really a way of getting a, a digital ID card that can dovetail with the CBDC system. What we're talking about is a complete digital control system. It's the end of currencies as we know it on the retail level. And what it means is that if the central bankers, as Mr. Carson's explained to you, don't want you spending money more than five kilometers from your home, or they don't want you buying pizza, you can't do it. They have complete control of how you can transact. And David, I just thought that was uh, absolutely hitting the nail on the head. If you put this together, this, this framework for digital identity with the COVID pass and the idea of central bank digital currencies on a retail basis, uh, this really is total control. Total, yes. We can monitor what you do. We can monitor what you buy. We can monitor all sorts of lifestyle decisions, how much alcohol you, you buy, uh, whether you smoke, how far you travel, whether you buy petrol or charge your car uh, electrically. We can give you um, points. We can give you um, the, the, an there can be an assessment as to how, how well you're complying with the state requirements to uh, fight global warming or the pandemic or whatever the narrative happens to be on the uh, particular month in question. And if you choose to resist, well, bad things can happen and you can be closed down. You can be prevented from transacting. You can be prevented from working. You can, you can be controlled in every way possible. Um, it is uh, a very frightening prospect. Uh, I thought well, one of the things that was interesting in that short excerpt there was uh, the suggestion that, of course, if they don't want you to be able to buy um, more than five kilometers away from your home, uh, they can stop that. That, of course, is the case. Uh, but it just reminded me, was it two or three weeks ago, David, you were talking about exactly this, this concept of, of everything being local 
uh, and you would not be moving outside your local neighborhood uh, more than yeah. the, the distance that you could walk in a day, for example? Yes, it's, it's, it's termed the 15-minute city or the 20-minute city. Uh, and it crops up in Scottish government planning at very high level for health. So when we're planning for the health of the nation, we are planning uh, to include this concept that we're going to have everything you need within 15 minutes from your front door, and that will be the range of your normal experience. Yes. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to other economic matters then. And, uh, well, you've chosen the uh, Financial Times here, but uh, the headline is Pandemic Fuels Broadest Global House Price Boom in Two Decades. Why am I skeptical about the, the suggestion that it's a pandemic fueling that? Well, yeah, quite. Uh, it's an interesting article in many ways. Yeah, that uh, an event which is at least billed as being a great catastrophe for the world um, that's 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 decimated the the population has caused. Uh, an enormous house price boom. Yeah, there, there's something wrong with that. Um, the, the, so one of the strange things about this is, of course, it's everywhere. It's all across the Western democracies. House prices are booming everywhere. So uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the Times article here looks at historically low interest rates without really addressing the fact that they've been historically low, low for what, 12 years now? Mm. And it's only now that this huge spike has come, so clearly there's something else happening. Happening. They're talking about accumula accumulated savings during lockdown, because closing the economy down means that we save more, because that makes sense. Um, and, and people want to work from home, so they need more space, and this is fueling the, the trend. And the, the word they don't use, that little word beginning with the letter I, inflation, is, is not really talked about. Um, there's a, a nice graph here that shows um, exactly what the, the boom is looking like. So you see the, 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 the previous boom, which ended in the, the bust of, uh, of around uh, 2007, 2008, uh, where that was a, a credit bubble uh, largely in housing. Um, and you see we've not only recovered, but we've surpassed uh, the levels of that last boom. And when you see it against uh, this is a, a, the next the next graph here is from the UK, and you see this against um, time for the UK with the with the quote pandemic highlighted at one end of the graph. What we see very clearly is once the pandemic hit and the economy essentially closed down, house prices started heading to the moon, and this is of course uh, only explained by government fiat money printing. Uh, we can elevate any price we really we want now. Um, we can't make the money be worth anything more. Um, the, the value of the pound note is falling all the time. Uh, but we can make temporary feel-good uh, factors um, with uh, asset price inflation because that'll fix things, Mike. That's never gone wrong before. Uh, no, never. And uh, well, we'll see what happens next. But uh, at least, there, David, there is some acknowledgement within uh, uh, certain elements of the financial system that inflation is like, it, well, there's a major possibility of it getting out of hand. Uh, 
this is just one indication of it. We've got many other uh, sectors of the economy showing similar stresses. And I think the word stress is, is quite appropriate here. Yes, and we have to remember what inflation is, is increasing the money supply, and it has been increased hugely. It is inflation. We have inflation. It's showing in things like the asset price and uh, increase, um, the rise in asset prices. It's just that that's not part of the CPI. The inflation measurement used by the government is so manipulated that it's, that it's far, far from being a real measure of the actual uh, price increases that are resulting from inflation, which is an increase in the money supply. Yes. Um, okay, well, let's uh, move on to censorship then. And uh, well, the news uh, over the last couple of days, Sky News Australia has been suspended from YouTube following what they say in their headline is a review of old videos. Uh, so it, I know that it's only a one week suspension. They haven't been kicked off YouTube altogether. So it's a one week suspension. Uh, by YouTube follows a review of content for compliance with YouTube's policies on COVID-19, which are subject to change in response to changes to global or local health authority guidance on the virus. Now, that's a, uh, I think that's a sort of uh, pressy of a World Health Organization statement, which I think Brian's going to come on to a little later. Uh, but Sky News Australia said, uh, we support broad discussion and debate on a wide range of topics and perspectives, which is vital to any democracy. We take our commitment to meeting editorial and community expectations seriously. Um, well, quite a lot of the, the discussion about this uh, across the internet has been uh, good. Uh, it's the best thing that could have happened. Uh, Sky News Australia is really just the uh, Australian equivalent of Fox. So who cares if being kicked off? Uh, and you can probably imagine the type of uh, people that have been pushing this kind of uh, uh, commentary around social media and so on. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think it's a pretty dangerous situation when we start seeing uh, effectively mainstream media being sanctioned in this way. Uh, nobody should be getting sanctioned in this way, frankly. But uh, you know, when, when it's getting to the point that even mainstream media is being sanctioned in this way, then we see how far down this road uh, we've gone. Peter Hitchens, in the meantime, uh, in the mail, uh, lost a lot of support in recent months because of his position on vaccination. But nonetheless, uh, I thought this was an interesting uh, blog post from him over the weekend. Uh, it's entitled, Which is Worse, Having an Opinion or Failing to Tell Readers the Facts? Um, and what he's making the point here is that IPSO, which is the uh, independent press standards organization, the uh, authorized uh, press regulator for following the, uh, the Levison inquiry, um, has effectively told, sanctioned the mail for uh, Hitchens making some commentary and giving his opinion on the wearing of masks. Uh, and what he's saying is, um, uh, he's saying that uh, this is a giant pole vaulting leap in Ipsos function and powers. Once it has been accepted as just, no opinion is safe. So he's, uh, I think it's important that we, uh, we get to grips with what uh, is going on here. Uh, and now, just to let you know what Ipso looks like, this is them. They're, they have, in their latest news section, our response to COVID-19. Uh, find out about how we are supporting uh, responsible reporting during the pandemic uh, and, uh, and so on, and the outcomes of complaints about COVID. So they are there to support responsible reporting and giving an opinion about something is not responsible. You may not do it, and so it'll be shut down. And just uh, for the sake of interest, if anybody wants to know, uh, this was the uh, the mask report that Hitchens had been giving his opinion about. 
uh, effective, effectiveness of adding a mask recommendation to other public health measures to prevent SARS-CoV-2 infection in Danish mask wearers. Um, and uh, so this, many, many people, including uh, Carl Hennigan from the uh, uh, Oxford uh, Evidence-Based Medicine Group, basically said, well, look, this, this paper demonstrates that there's no evidence of any efficacy with respect to, to uh, wearing of face masks at all. Hitchens had been reporting on that and, the, uh, and Ipso took him to task for it. So we're heading in a pretty dangerous direction with censorship at the moment. Yeah, and it's coming in very quickly. I, I had an um, additional angle on this particular story. So if we come back to the mail here, uh, we've got the YouTube ban Sky News Australia in the headline. And uh, the first bit of text was Google has banned Sky News Australia from uploading content to YouTube for one week after the news platform allegedly breached its rules on spreading so-called COVID misinformation. I just wanted to cross out YouTube and I wanted to cross out the Google because, of course, ultimately it's people who've made these decisions and we need to keep it personal. And we need to focus on the people. So let's bring in Sundar Pichai, if I pronounce that name correctly. Um, so he's essentially saying we, because it's his organization, he's the man in charge, we ban content that promotes diagnostic methods that contradict local health authorities or WHO, the World Health Organization. And uh, same for the chief executive for, for YouTube. Uh, so there's uh, Susan, which is, can you pronounce that, Mike? You're better than than I am on Polish names. Uh, or have I dropped you in it now? Yeah. yeah I should have, have checked that. that. So apologies, that somebody know. will pick me up on that. But there she is. There's the lady. You can recognize her from the picture. And uh, it goes on because um, Sundar also said, we ban content which promotes transmission information that contradicts the local health authorities and who? So we've got people set, setting the rules. Who are these people? What gives them the power in order to dictate? Indeed. And I just wanted to, because this this always grabs me, this particular quote here, because the local health authorities, what does that mean? Of course, what he's talking about is national health authorities. And this gives us a clue as to the thinking of him and his and people at his level, because he is thinking purely in a globalist sense. And so national health authorities become local health authorities. Um, and uh, so I think that's just a little in interesting insight into the mindset. I think it's a very good one. So let's come back to the uh, Daily Mail. Now in the text, uh, what I saw was the fact that alongside their main text, they had this other text in blue. Very often in the mail, this is actually an advert that will have come from government, but there was no labeling uh, that it was from the government. The headline uh, in the blue text was, do face masks work? Most, but not all studies say coverings do reduce spread of COVID in enclosed indoor settings. And uh, it was quite a long segment. Uh, and then I noticed it went to this right at the end. So let's bring it up on screen. The World Health Organization says masks should be used as part of a comprehensive strategy of measures to suppress transmission and save lives. The use of a mask alone is not sufficient to provide an adequate level of protection against COVID-19. So there's the Daily Mail kowtowing to, the, to who, 
And then it also says if COVID-19 is spreading in your community, stay safe by taking some simple precautions such as physical distancing, wearing a mask, keeping rooms well ventilated, avoiding crowds, cleaning your hands and coughing into a bent elbow or tissue. Check local advice where you live and work. Do it all. So my point is that actually what's going on in this article is the Daily Mail is feigning debate about the subject of censorship, but within its own article, it then simply defers to the uh, advice from the World Health Organization and the local health authorities, Mike. So uh, I almost don't have words to say how, mis well, it's not misleading, but, but the reader just doesn't understand what's being done with them mm. as they go through this. Yeah. Um, okay, that takes and, us on. I'll uh, just add this one as well. Over the weekend, um, I picked up an amazing uh, uh, Fox News. This is Tucker Carlson, but he was talking about people uh, who'd been vaccinated and were getting the virus. Uh, I didn't watch it all, but the opening few minutes, very sensible, talking about factually correct information. So I tweeted it out, uh, but within no time at all, the video was unavailable. Now, the label is the video was taken down by the uploader. Uh, but I'm going to thank the people who responded to me saying, well, we can't watch it because it's been removed. So presumably this was also some form of backdoor censorship. Uh, what was Fox News doing? Simply reporting and questioning the fact that vaccinated people still get COVID-19. But of course, they got vaccinated because that was going to protect them from COVID-19. Yes. Now, uh, David, we're going to have a look at people that are under the caution of the law at the moment and start off with, uh, with Craig Murray. Yes, here we see Craig Murray handing himself in at St. Leonard's Police Station in Edinburgh, a former ambassador, um, and he's off to serve an eight-month sentence for contempt of court for being a journalist. Um, the uh, text here said the ambassador who, quote, relished, that's quoting the judge, identifying complainants against Alex Salmon. Um, now, this is very interesting because uh, they quote Lady Dory and the judge at, at greater length here. Um, she said um, uh, regarding jigsaw identification, that's giving little bits of information so that eventually the identity of a complainant can be pieced together. Quote, it appears in the Post and articles that he was in fact relishing the task he set himself, which was essentially to allow the identities of complainants to be discerned, um, which he thought was in the public interest in a way which did not attract sanction. So he was, she said he was trying to stay within the letter of the law, um, but still uh, contravene the, the, the basic intent of protecting the identities of these uh, women. Now, I would say that from my point of view that this is not correct, that uh, what he was doing was journalism. And the key point was not that he was identifying any individuals. I certainly didn't learn any individual identities from reading his output. He was putting forward the point that all of the individuals who made allegations against Alex Salmond, allegations found to be false, allegations dismissed in the trial by a jury, um, 
all of them were part of a small coterie of politically involved people surrounding Nicola Sturgeon. And this is a very significant fact because we were dealing with a show trial and we were dealing with a politically motivated prosecution that was using the great arms of the state, the Crown Office, the, the Office of the Lord Advocate, the police and the courts to engage in what he was regarding as a political witch hunt, a politically motivated takedown of a, of a, of a rival for power. Okay, uh, but uh, what, what's going on with, uh, or what's Ron Paul writing about here in lewrockwell.com? More show but trials. This, this is all, yes, over, over to the States now. Um, so this is the, 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 the trials which are very show trial-like. He, he, he's calling them the January the 6th show trials. Uh, this is the, uh, the trials which are coming from the invasion of uh, the Capitol building by protesters who had attended a Trump rally um, uh, on uh, January 6th of this year. Um, and he's, he's writing about the, the fact that, that a protester who was... Uh, who did nothing more onerous than walk into a building and take a photograph has been essentially tried and convicted and sentenced to eight months and, uh, and viewed as a domestic terrorist, even though he didn't engage in any terrorism. Um, this, this, this particular gentleman, uh, Mr Hodgkins, um, is considered a terrorist not because he undertook terrorist activities, but because the context in which he undertook non-terrorist activities uh, were, quote, imperiling democracy. So this is a political sentence for a political act, and it is nothing to do with uh, the general nature of the actions of the individual. So this is, uh, Ron Paul is, is highlighting, this is a failure in the in the legal system, this is a this is the legal system transitioning from being something that protects the population from excesses of others, including the government, to one which is politically led, politically directed, and is involved in simply silencing dissent. Um, and he concludes, the purpose of the Soviet show trials was to create an enemy that the public could collectively join in hating and blaming for all the failures of the system. The purpose was to turn one part of the population against the other uh, part of the population and demand that they be cancelled and it worked very well for a while. So he's suggesting that this is another move into communism, into the sort of totalitarian state that used to run in the so rule in the Soviet Union and is now increasingly coming in by stealth into United States and Britain and other places, which used to be uh, the exemplars for free societies. Well, the only thing I'd add to that, David, is it's difficult to see how it can be an accident that this enormous change in Western governments has come in. It's got to be deliberate. It's calculated. We can see the steps. Um, and uh, coming back to Scotland then, David, uh, somebody who's been on the UK column news once or twice uh, with some quite comedic uh, content is now, uh, well, was arrested at the weekend. Yes, um, he has, this is Andy McGovern. I uh, interviewed him just a few hours before he was in fact arrested. He went down to speak outside a building in Edinburgh uh, where Nicola Sturgeon was at that point resident. 
um, and having addressed the crowd, he was then uh, arrested by the police in very strange circumstances. They came up to him and they said uh, that they wanted a chat. And when he said he didn't want to chat with them, then because he didn't want to chat with them, he was therefore under arrest, which seems very illogical um, uh, line of line of thinking there. Um, and he was uh, kept in, in uh, again, St. Lennon's Police Station in Edinburgh for some time. And then when he was released, he was given bail conditions which, which are extremely onerous and essentially prevents him from uh, carrying on his peaceful grassroots campaign uh, with his friends and neighbours in Glasgow. So they're acting to silence him. This is not a matter of policing. This is not a matter of anybody having been hurt or any property having been damaged because none of those things happened. This is a matter of social control and um, political control. Um, so how long do the bail conditions last? Well, the, the, he is challenging, challenging them in court, I understand, but at the moment they will last up to the end of September when uh, his hearing is due. So this is the, 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 the slowness of the judicial system and the fact that the courts after COVID are all overwhelmed and have a backlog uh, becomes a means by which uh, people can be silenced because the bail conditions uh, will run on and on for months, um, at least until the, the, the court hearing and maybe after that. And all during this time, um, due to these bail conditions, things which are lawful for anybody else in the country to do are unlawful for Andy McGovern to do, because if he if he goes to certain parts of Glasgow, if he goes to central Glasgow, if he goes to Glasgow Green, where the, 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 the weekend gatherings have been happening for a year and a half now, without any trouble, without any violence, without any property damage or anything like that, this, these have all been peaceful events. If he goes and attends one of those, uh, he will be arrested and uh, remanded for a breach of bail conditions. So his liberty has been curtailed in order to prevent him being part of a political movement opposing lockdown. Okay, well, we'll keep everybody informed in that, on that. Now, uh, the United Nations is holding uh, a Food Systems Summit 2021 in 2021. Uh, and uh, in the run-up to that, uh, just at the end of last week, they ran the Food Systems pre-summit, because if you're going to have a summit, you've got to have a pre-summit. Um, so representatives from 100 nations uh, were at this, um, and uh, it was co-hosted by the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, and it was held uh, and Italy because it was, uh, it was held in Rome. Um, and uh, so, well, the question is, do we need food? This is the question, because food's problematic. Food production creates CO2, and CO2 is harmful and it's poisonous and we don't want it. So in order to prevent CO2, we've got to stop growing food. Um, and well, uh, just to give a flavor of what this was about, um, I'm going to apologize in advance for inflicting this on everyone, but Prince Charles gave a bit of a, a keynote at the end of the first day, I think it was. Uh, and I'm afraid you're going to have to listen to a few excerpts from this. Now, this is edited. Now, I've tried to be uh, uh, I haven't taken anything out of context, but listen carefully uh, to what he says. I am most grateful for the opportunity to address this closing session. I speak to you today as someone who, over the past 35 years, has been a long-standing and practicing advocate of 
developing a more sustainable approach to land use and food production. I need not stress how urgent it is that we achieve profound and rapid change in this sector. The way our food system operates affects our environment and our health every day of our lives, but also the fragile health of our planet. Now, I cannot think of a sector that is more literally central to the survival of our world. Roughly half of all the habitable land on Earth is now used for agriculture. In the last 50 years alone, more than a third of our farmable soil has been destroyed or degraded by human activity. The global food system is also responsible for more than a third of all greenhouse gas emissions. Much evidence points to the fact that it is perfectly feasible to produce food in a way that is beneficial to Earth's interdependent systems without damaging our economic well-being. At the beginning of this year, I published the Terra Carta as a recovery roadmap for nature, people and planet. And last month, I launched 10 transition coalitions of willing and able companies, together representing over $60 trillion in, asset, in assets under management. So, David, um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Uh, well, I'll, I'll put you on the spot then. Tell me what your thoughts are about that. Completely incoherent. Right? He said... Right. We're interested in sustainable land use and food production, right? That's not the same as reducing food production. It then goes on to, well, you know, we're using half the land. Well, why only half? Why shouldn't we use the land for food production? If, if you're Christian, and he's meant to be, you, you should be, because you should be stewards of the, of the earth, but actually in charge of it. But anyway, that's, a, that's another thing. If he's, if he's a Gaia earth worshipper, it's, it's different. Right, and and he's then talking about well, greenhouse gases are beneficial for agriculture because you, with more CO two, you get a greener planet. So we'll leave that to one side. He then talks about economic damage, and he says no economic damage. We can solve this problem with no economic damage. Now that is very a very interesting statement, and if he believes that, he believes a lie because the the policies that are being pushed are hugely economic damaging, massively so. And, and we'll maybe talk about this more in extra time. Um, so it, it's all over the place. It's, right. it's, a, it's a hodgepodge of beliefs that has no coherence at all. Right. Well, here's a couple of observations from me then. First of all, we need profound and rapid change. The change can't happen in a way that anybody can cope with. We've got to have profound and rapid change. When we have profound and rapid change, we have chaos and devastation for people that are struggling to, to keep up with that change. But if you listen to what he said, it was all about the planet, not about humans. So humans weren't part of that discussion. It was about the planet. It was about the survival of our world. It wasn't about the survival of populations. Uh, he said that a third of uh, soils are destroyed already. We'll come on to that in a second. But the message very strongly that I got from the entire piece was that there are too many people in the world. It's having too many impact on our planet, too big, too big an impact on our planet. And really, we should have a few less. But let's just deal with one issue here, which is his claim that one third of soils are destroyed uh, or damaged by human 
farming. Well, we've covered this because, of course, he's not the first to, to claim this in the public. Uh, Michael Gove said this a couple of, you know, 2017, he said this, uh, as the UK, that the UK is 30 to 40 years away from the fundamental eradication of soil fertility. This was uh, Gove's statement in 2017, and he's repeated it many times since. Um, Farmers Weekly here uh, c- covering the fact that scientists, in inverted commas, were warning only 100, 100 harvests left in UK farm soils. Um, and uh, we have another one here from Scientific American printing a Reuters article, only 60 years of farming left if soil degradation continues. This is a, uh, a, a narrative which is being pushed by, a certain, by people with a certain ideology, uh, mostly involving the claims that population is too large uh, and that we're destroying the planet and so on, and that we're not being stewards of the planet. Uh, and if you remember uh, the last time we mentioned this, we brought up this article from uh, Dr. Hannah Richer. Uh, do we have 60 harvests left? Do we only have 60 harvests less left? Now, she's from our world of data, uh, and she said that the 60 harvest claim is quite clearly false. Uh, and she uh, made a published a paper with some useful graphs and so on, and uh, we'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes as usual under the program. More than 90% of conventionally managed soils, she said, had a, lifestyle, had a lifespan greater than 60 years. The, medium, the median was 491 years for thinning soils. Half had a lifespan greater than 1,000 years, and 18% exceeded 10,000 years. Uh, she said, Michael Gove said the UK had only 30 to 40 years of harvest left because it was, quote, drenching them with chemicals. In fact, shifting to a no-till approach often requires more pesticides and fertilizers, not less, she said. Uh, people will often argue that while extreme headlines may be untruthful, they're worth it if they force people to take action. I don't buy it. It can be damaging in many ways. So uh, Hannah Ritchie's work here, and just uh, so that you know who Hannah Ritchie is, um, she uh, uh, holds a BSc in Environmental Geoscience, an MSc in Carbon Management, a PhD in Geosciences from the University of Edinburgh. Uh, she's a senior researcher and head of the research at Our World in Data, and she focuses on the long-term development of food supply, agriculture, energy, and environment, uh, and their compatibility with global development. So she certainly seems to hold a, a contravening view to Prince Charles and uh, and Michael Gove. And if I'm misreporting that, then Hannah Ritchie, please do get in touch. But that seems that's certainly what you've said in this in this report. Um, but uh, Prince Charles wasn't the only person sort of pushing this kind of narrative about population. Uh, in a couple of weeks ago, I think it was now on uh, CGTN, the Chinese channel. Uh, this is Dave Gardner. He's uh, uh, he was appearing talking about World Population Day. He is the co-host of the Over the Overpopulation podcast for the World Population Balance Organization, and uh, he's been an executive director there for several years. Uh, and he's basically saying that he is very keen to see uh, the world population brought down very quickly from seven and a half billion or what we have, whatever we are at the minute to four billion. So not quite the five hundred thousand figure that uh, five hundred million. Uh, 500 million people uh, figure that uh, many people talk about, but nonetheless, a significant reduction. Uh, thought? Well, I, I just want to come back to uh, Prince Charles, and, and I 
what did I pick up on the fact that he's casually waving the raw hand saying, well, I've been chatting to 10 transition companies and that gives me access to 60 trillion pounds. This is as bad as the Church of England assembling 17 trillion pounds for political, world political objectives. But then, of course, we've, we've got uh, Prince Charles with his duchy organic range, which has just clocked up a billion uh, a billion of sales, a billion pounds of sales. Um, so that's with Waitrose. Um, and I think we can say, if we look at all the supermarket chains, have they really got the best interests of humanity at heart? Or are they interested in making massive profits from food? So it's hypocrisy is the one that gets me on this. Uh, I... And and. I think he's I think he's a dangerous man if he can sit down with people who can manipulate 60 trillion pounds. Who is he and why should we believe a word he says? Well, the key phrase there with respect to the 60 trillion pounds was assets under management, David. And of course, we know what that means. That means we're talking hedge funds and, uh, you know, uh, financial speculation. Yes, this is plans by the few, not by the many. This is not what we should have. Right. We don't care if the supermarkets make a lot of profit because if they compete, the profits will be driven down and they'll have to do better and better. The problem exists if you have regulation that prevents that competition and limits what things, uh, how things are grown and how, how the land is used at a political level. And that's exactly what's being discussed. The, the difficulty here um, is that we've got people who, are, who have bought the lie that's been repeated since the early or well, late 1960s, the population explosion. We're all going to starve. There's not going to be enough food. Uh, the whole world's doomed. There's far too many people, right? And it didn't happen. It didn't happen in the 1960s. It didn't happen in the 1970s. It didn't happen in the 1980s. It was predicted in all of these periods of time, right? And now we've got to a point where actually the, the people of the, of the planet are richer than ever before largely because of the, the fall of communism, although it's making a comeback. But, but the, the, the um, fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening up of um, huge amounts of the planet, including China, to uh, free market um, forces to some degree, uh, saw the greatest ever reduction in worldwide poverty. So people have got more. Um, the population is now not growing very quickly at all, and it's going to peak relatively soon. There is no population explosion, just like there's no global warming crisis. It is all a lie, but it's the, the question is, well, why are they lying? Why is, why is misleading uh, false facts being put forward at, at such a high level and used to control governments across the globe? That one worries me quite a lot. Yes. Okay. Well, let's, uh, David, very briefly, uh, please, uh, Scotland. And uh, Hamza Yusuf demands investigation into the nursery over alleged racism claims. Right. So there's a nursery in the beautiful uh, town of Broughty Ferry near Dundee. And it has, um, it had an application from Hamza Yusuf's wife to put Hamza Yusuf's child in the nursery and they turned them down. So what happens in a fascist state when you turn down the dear leader or anyone with political power? Uh, well, there's trouble. So uh, Hamza uh, didn't like the, what happened and they decided they would have an investigation. So they phoned up the nursery and pretended to be um, people with Scottish or Irish names and uh, found that they, 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 they could, in fact, um, 
perhaps get a place in this nursery. So it's been decided it's racism. And uh, they are running the power of the state uh, forward to take on this nursery on behalf of Hamza. Uh, the uh, the nursery in their defence said that their owners are of Asian heritage and they have a wide range of people from all cultural and religious backgrounds, including two Muslim families at present. So they are saying that they are not racist. I find it deeply worrying that um, a, a minor concern that might affect any family getting a place in a nursery is now being blown up to a political race-baiting opportunity uh, by um, a, a politician who seems to have um, no love for the country he's part in, a part of, who seems to have uh, a very totalitarian view um, that's quite un-Scottish and quite contrary to the history and 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 um, and background and heritage uh, of, of this little country and. With uh, Nicola Sturgeon and other people in the cabinet, they are busy turning this country into something very totalitarian. Um, and the fact that he's then going after a little nursery business because it has angered him uh, in this way and using the state agencies at his disposal to do it, I, I find it troubling. It, it's, it smacks of bullying. Uh, I don't like it. Um, okay, and uh, well, lots of talk over the last uh, several years about the, the opiates problem in the United States, but actually the United States is, is pretty much uh, competed with by Scotland. So uh, uh, oh, no, we, deaths we're in Scotland reached a new one. record level, yes. We're number one, and this is outstanding because look at the United Kingdom and Sweden and Norway because it's not a northern northern climate issue either. Sweden and Norway are a bit worse than the United Kingdom as a whole, which includes the Scottish figures. Look at that graph. The Scottish figures are enormous. It's three and a half times the drug death rate of the United Kingdom as a whole. This is unbelievable, and it's recent. If you look at the, the, the drug deaths over time, uh, you'll see that they're now sitting at something like um, 1,300 um, and they were sitting at 200 as, as recently as the year 2000. So they've gone up six and a half fold in, in a couple of decades. And most of that rise has been since 2013. It's all under the watch of Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP government. And I actually, I don't have a full understanding as to why it's happening, but it does show something very unpleasant and dark and decaying in Scottish society when we're having this degree of uh, drug deaths compared to England, which is a very similar country with very similar levels of, of poverty and, depri uh, and deprivation uh, and very similar problems facing the, the the people and who had a very similar sort of drug problem only 20 years ago. Yes. Okay. So we'll keep an eye on that one as well. Now, uh, Brian, we're pretty much out of time, yeah. uh, but uh, we do have something to end on. Uh, now, if you think back uh, a couple of years uh, when Mark Sedwell was uh, head of the civil service and also head of the national security agency and also head of the cabinet office uh, and so on, um, well, we produced this little graphic uh, of him sitting on the throne 
Um, and uh, head of the cabinet office, as you can see, national security advisor, head of the civil service, and we called him King of the United Kingdom. Uh, now, of course, he has uh, retired from uh, public life, as it were, at least as a civil servant, uh, and he's become he's been kicked into the House of Lords. Uh, he's a baron these days, uh, but it doesn't end there uh, because he's getting all kinds of jollies uh, these days. It sort of the first one that I noticed uh, was in December when he became a senior advisor to Rothschild Bank. Um, so as you do, because once you've uh, been in the civil service and you've done all the right things for the right people, you get the right kind of job afterwards. So he became a senior advisor for Rothschild Bank, but it gets better uh, because just last week uh, he has been announced as uh, councillor as, uh, uh, to council as senior independent deputy chair uh, at Lloyd's. Um, so he's got another banking job there. Um, and it gets even better, David, because, uh, well, the Percy Lord was very pleased to be tweeting out uh, to the, uh, when was this, on the 31st of July, uh, that he has welcomed Lord Mark Sedwell, former cabinet secretary and national security advisor. He's now an honorary colonel in the Royal Marines. So there you go. What do you make of that? I don't know what to make of that. An honorary colonel in the Royal Marines. Well, if if we ever need to uh, defend, fight them on the beaches, will we'll Mark said we'll be leading the charge. You know something, Mike? I suspect he might not be. Well, I, I think what's going on here is that you're getting the right people into the military. This is privatisation of the military where you want people in at the ground level affecting the direct control of what's happening. So uh, he's got a big grin on his face as though it's a bit of silly fun and he's very pleased to have his little green berry. But actually what he's doing here is, is going to be the representative of the banks inside the military. This is privatisation of the military. Uh, but uh, Well, OK, that, that's, uh, that's a good point. But David, uh, just very, very briefly, what are your thoughts on his roles with Rothschild and Lloyds? Well, I mean, the, the, the issue of the banking interests and the power of the banking interests in setting policy is very obscure. So here we've got someone with... Um, with links to the, to the political level and to the top level of the, the British civil service, which are second to none, are on these boards. And this would imply that there's a, there's a level of influence that's, that's quite concealed that's going to be coming from that route. And it won't just be him. I mean, there'll be many people with political and, and civil service careers also on these boards. And it just shows you the degree to which that the government is is influenced by uh, things which are nothing to do with what might be debated on the floor of the House of Commons, for example. Um, it's also interesting that he's joining the uh, Royal Marines as honorary colonel at a point when they're not very long for this world, are they? It's a little bit... Um, it's, it smacks a little bit of uh, banking takeover um, and selling the assets. Yes, indeed. Well, we'll we watch it carefully. Yes, we've got to leave it there. We'll be back in a few minutes uh, on the UK Column live stream with some extra. Yeah, I would say once again um, that the Doctors for COVID Ethics was a really wonderful event. Um, that really couldn't have taken place without the support that UK Column viewers have given us uh, earlier on when we were asking for extra support and extra people to sign up with us and become subscribers. Uh, when that support came in at the time, we said we would use it wisely 
And I think that uh, that event, Mike, was was something that could only have happened with the support from UK Column members. Yes, thank you for that. Thank you. Um, yep, as I say, it will be on the live stream uh, in a couple of minutes with extra, otherwise 1 p.m. as usual on Wednesday, when I believe Alex Thompson will be with us. Uh, hopefully. Physically. Hopefully. Hopefully, yes. See you then. Okay, bye-bye.